We continue on in Mark's account of the Passion Week. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. And we will read through verse 26. If you do not see that in your English Bible before you, I will mention it later in the text as we move along. That verse 26. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, first, we humble ourselves because we are by nature proud. And we ask that Jesus Christ will receive all of the glory. That as we gather in this place to worship thy name, that our focus will be upon the one who loved us and gave himself for us on the tree. And we pray that the people of God will be refreshed in the truth and that we will grow thereby. But we also pray for the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, without which one cannot have faith and show repentance. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will bless in such a way that lost sinners will come to know Christ Jesus, our Savior. And Heavenly Father, the needs of our congregation are great. We will be remembering just a few of those names in the pastoral prayer this morning. But grant, Heavenly Father, that those who cannot be with us, who are watching because they're ill or in a sick bed or just incapacitated, may also receive the blessing of thy word. They long to be here, but cannot be. And we pray that they also will grow in grace. And that some lost persons would hear this and come to know the Lord, if it is thy pleasure throughout the world. For that is our great desire, that Christ be exalted as the Savior of sinners. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand, Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 12. This is the Word of God. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, 
the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, having entered into Jerusalem, Jesus viewed the temple precincts as we saw last week, and then he left for the night. This was the calm before the storm. The next day, here in this passage, the storm clouds burst. We begin looking at this passage by seeing an enacted parable. The first thing, the barren fig tree. Jesus was with his disciples and he was hungry. True humanity is truly God, truly man, and he hungered. And he sees at a distance a fig tree in leaf. A leafing tree indicates the probability of fruit even though it was not the season. But in verse 14, we read that Jesus cursed the tree. Why did he do that? Did he curse the tree because he was disappointed? Or because he was angry? Was it just peak? No, this is the impeccable son of God. He uses the incident as a parable to describe Israel and God's attitude toward Israel. Behind this may be a couple of passages, but one passage that might be behind it is the fifth chapter of Isaiah, where God says, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. And he goes on to speak of how that vineyard did not produce fruit. Israel is false. Israel puts on a show. Israel is dishonest at heart. And here is the warning, the Lord shall wither his professing but not possessing people. That it is possible for a whole church, a whole nation of professors to actually not be possessors is found here. Just as he withered the fig tree, so God's curse is upon Israel unfruitful Israel shall fall. In the enacted parable, Christ spells Israel's doom. And we should mark clearly all of the blessings that we find from our Savior in the Gospels, but we should also mark clearly the curses that we find in the Gospel. His disciples paid attention. We read in verse 14, and his disciples heard it. They listened. They paid attention to it. And there must be at this point a recognition that they are entering into a very dark time indeed. They yet do not understand, but what is ahead for the Savior? What is ahead for them? 
there must have been darkness filling their hearts and filling their minds. They cannot miss that things are very serious indeed. And Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is a parable that now prepares his disciples for how the Lord Jesus addresses the barrenness of Israel by cleansing the temple. And so that's the second thing we see in the text, the barren temple that takes in verses 15 through 19. Jesus entered the court of the Gentiles, and what did he see? He sees desecration. He sees that it's been turned into a place of business, that there is selling, approved sacrificial animals for sure, but selling them in the temple precincts where there are money changers, and the temple tax, of course, must be paid in Jewish coin, and there were dove sellers, and only Mark in verse 17 includes the house of prayer my place of worship. This temple is a house of prayer. And the court of the Gentiles is now a thoroughfare. And the need of the Gentile to know the Lord, to worship the Lord, to come to the Lord, to come to his holy temple is profaned. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, the Savior of nations, and they have taken this court of worship and they have relegated it to commerce. Where is worship? Where is bowing the knee? Where is reverence and awe? Where is prayer? And again, in verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now in this passage, he is citing two Old Testament passages. The one is Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. This passage is a passage that speaks of the coming of the Gentiles, the bringing in of foreigners and how they are to believe and how they are to trust. And we read in Isaiah 56, 7, these will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, for the Gentiles, for the nations. This is a stone barrier that is placed between the place where the Gentiles might gather and those of Israel in their respective places, the core of the women. And this was the one place, the one place where Gentiles could gather and worship with God's people, the Lord. This was the one place Gentiles could worship and the Jewish establishment hindered it from being a place of prayer. They set up cash registers, as it were, in the very temple precinct. They set up cash registers all under the pretense of facilitating worship by selling sacrificial animals. There's another passage that is being referenced in this particular place. And it is the passage that Pastor McNeil read to us this morning. It's the temple sermon of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 7. And in that passage, among others, we read in verse 11, Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Jeremiah's temple sermon which promised the destruction of Jerusalem. 
he speaks of swindling pilgrims, men's robbery of the name of God, and yet the people of God came. And in their pretended piety, they said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I mean, we're here with all of our piety to worship God, but it was not in the heart, it was not in the soul. And this is the Old Testament background to the cleansing of the temple. This is what God calls lying words. And this barrenness did not come overnight, I want us to remember. I want us to think, how did this happen? There is a failure to understand redemption, that they were the redeemed people of God, that they were brought out in the Exodus. It's a failure to understand that all that the temple pointed to in the Lord Jesus who has come. There is allowance of something to take hold of the heart that didn't belong, something other than the Lord, something other than prioritizing His grace and mercy. Rather than the God of redemption, other things took hold in their hearts and in their lives. And like a virus in a computer that shows in various ways and eventually shuts it down, so here, only it is more serious because it is the human heart. They had become all leaves and no fruit. They seemed to thrive, but the gospel purpose of Israel and the temple were completely absent from their understanding and their hearts. They went through the motions, they built the temple, they sung God's praises, but all but a remnant were fruitless taking us to Jeremiah, the eighth chapter, in which God says in verse 13, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. True worship, people of God, is a matter of the heart. True worship is a correct form but it is not only a correct form. True worship always bears fruit. In true worship, we have faith-filled hearts that lead to lives that understand the forgiveness of our sins, the forgiveness that we owe to others, as Jesus will point out later in this passage. This was the chief place, listen, this was the chief place of the means of grace for the Old Testament people of God. For ancient Israel, Israel had lost its heart for God. Now surely in all of this, there's application, isn't there? Who rules and reigns in my thoughts and affections? What in my life might have taken the place of those things that ought to be there as God's priorities in my life? If the temple the place of prayer, the place of sacrifice was the main place in which the means of grace were displayed, then for us it is word and sacrament. It is public and private worship. It is prayer. But all of this can happen without a heart for God and it not be true. So Jesus looks at all of this he sees to the heart because he sees the results of the hearts. And he cleanses the temple. And he casts out the money changers and those who are selling these animals. 
in the temple precinct to the Gentiles. And he has done this at the beginning of his ministry, we learn in John's gospel, but now he does this at the end of his ministry, bracketing his ministry. It is his temple, after all. He owns this place. All that it's about is about him. All of the sacrificial system points to him. He is about to go to the cross to die for sinners. That temple pointed to that very truth and that very reality. And so the fig tree pointed to the barrenness of Israel right under the shadow of the symbol of the gospel, the sacrifices, they turned the purpose of the temple on its head. The very purpose of the temple was to point to what Jesus was about to do when he shed his blood for sinners. Jesus is cleansing the temple. And essentially, he is saying, this place is no longer serving its purpose. This place is under judgment. This place must go. And it did in 70 AD, as our Lord prophesied in Matthew 24, as well as his own coming at the end of the age. They had hearts like a stagnant pool. And the longer it stood stagnant, the more polluted it became. Oh, beware of those things that can enter the heart, that bring coldness, that bring a kind of stagnancy, because the longer it is stagnant, then the more poisonous it becomes. And that fact of poisonous hearts is what Jesus is pointing to when he says in verse 18, and the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The chief priests and the scribes, those who should be responsible for protecting the temple, those who should be responsible for making sure that worship was according to what the law prescribed, but also from the heart because they taught those things from the Old Testament. The chief priests and the scribes wanted to kill Jesus Christ, to whom the sacrifices point. They in no way want to be reformed by Christ. They do not want hearts to be changed. They were afraid at this point to kill him because of the people being astonished at his teaching. And fear keeps many a person from committing a sin that really reigns in his heart. Isaiah told about this when he says, they hid their faces from him, and they esteemed him not. Anyone here hiding his face from him, esteeming him not, not wanting to see him for the Redeemer and the Savior that he is? Have you ever contemplated your sins? Have you ever contemplated your need of the sacrifice to which the temple pointed in the sacrificial system? I remember reading in Spurgeon somewhere, not on this text, but somewhere else at some time, where he said, you need to think about your sins. Because he said, be assured that the time will come, he's talking about eternity and hell, the time will come when you will meditate on your sins if you do not now meditate upon Christ as Redeemer. Now I want us to remember, we now are God's temple, aren't we? We are the fulfillment of those things pointed to in the temple imagery. Yes, Christ 
in his body on the cross, in his resurrection, but also he speaks of the church as his temple. He speaks of your body, believer, as a temple of the Holy Spirit. The exalted Lord comes to us with the same sovereign right in word and sacrament, and he claims our lives. And the temple is his just as much as was the symbolic temple of old. Do we recognize Jesus Christ as priest over his house? Do we recognize him as priest over our lives? Do we see Christ's right as king to lay his finger on my heart and to say, that must go, that must be cleansed? So you see, we must avoid a kind of sentimentalized view of love. That's all through our culture. Christians shouldn't have it. Jesus is revealing the Father's heart. God's loving heart burns with jealousy for his ordinances, for his people. He loves us so intensely that he judges everything that will obscure the one way of fellowship with the Father. And Christ's love is inseparable from passion for his Father's glory a passion that will lead him all the way to the cross. And the Savior does not want his people to be all leaves and no fruit. What about it? It is a good thing for us, not in some morbid way, but thinking of the Redeemer, the forgiver of sins, thinking of his grace to ask, am I leaves and not fruit? Am I little fruit, mostly leaves? Where are things in view of what I'm learning here. But there's one other thing, the barren fig tree revisited. That's the third thing, the barren fig tree revisited that takes in verses 20 to 25. So we come to verse 19, they went out of the city and then in verse 20, passing by the fig tree, they see that the fig tree has been withered to its roots. In verse 21, Peter exclaims, Rabbi, look! I mean, he can hardly believe its eyes. Within 24 hours, the curse has reached down all the way to the roots of that tree. This was miraculous, the cursing of the fig tree. The axe is laid to the root of unrepentant Israel. That's the point. And Jesus responds with lessons from the withered fig tree, his power over it, the place of prayer in our lives. In verses 22 and 23, he responds in this way. He answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Have faith in God, he says. Edersheim somewhere says, as I noted this past week, Faith gives absolute power in prayer, but it is also its moral condition. You see, whatever you ask for in prayer, and remember that true prayer is asking for those things that are agreeable to God's will. True prayer, prayer whatever you pray, and true prayer believing that you have received it, it shall be done. Old Matthew Henry said, through the strength and power of God in Christ, the greatest difficulty shall be got over and the thing shall be effected. Now that's the point. And in verse 25, we see also 
that true prayer proceeds from a loving heart. Notice what he says. And whenever you stand praying, standing being the common way that Jew prayed, sometimes on the knee, but mostly standing, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. The heart is the issue here. Forgive if you have anything against anyone, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. In other words, effective prayer requires faith, but effective prayer also comes from forgiven hearts, loving hearts. And then verse 26 is in the traditional text, but if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Now, all of this is so, and extraordinarily important for us as we wish to be a, a praying congregation and praying Christians. But I think we still miss the point of by faith casting this mountain in the sea if we don't think a little more deeply here. What is the main issue here? Let's read verses 21 and following again. And Peter, remember, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received and it shall be yours. The, the rabbis, evidently, used the idea of rooting up mountains, it was commonly used by the rabbis for that which was incredible, that which was impossible. So Jesus is saying, you will do the incredible, you will do the impossible by casting this mountain into the sea. Well, what mountain? Of what mountain is he speaking? What sea? Well, there's only one sea that probably could fit the description here, and that's the Dead Sea. So you're going to cast it into the Dead Sea. Well, is, is the mountain the Mount of Olives? That's certainly a possibility. But I think more likely that he looks down on the Temple Mount, and he sees the Temple Mount. And he is saying to them, and making a point, somewhat like Zechariah 4.7, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. And he's saying to his disciples, do you see that, that temple mount there? You know, it's, it's not fulfilling its function. It's become an obstacle to the gospel. Hence, it will be removed. And now, when you go, after I am raised from the dead, you see that I'm, I'm thinking ahead, that they would be thinking upon this passage. And essentially, the point would be, as I am raised from the dead, and you go and minister, and when you see obstacles to the gospel, you also pray in faith, and those mountains, those in incredible obstacles, will be removed. Now, I wonder how many obstacles to the gospel in this world are not removed simply because you have not, because you ask not. I wonder 
how many of us are actually praying for the extension of the gospel? How many of us are praying around the world when we offer our prayers to God and teaching our children so to do? Do we want the gospel to go forth in Iran? Then pray that mountain, that obstacle to the gospel is removed. China, North Korea, Zurich, Washington, here. And I think when we begin to pray that way, Lord, there's an obstacle to the gospel in this place or that. This obstacle may be the government. It may be any number of things. It may be a false religion, a false philosophy. It may be thoroughgoing secularism. Lord, we're going to begin to pray that that mountain will be cast into the sea, that it will be removed, that obstacle to the gospel, that it will be taken away. And that means that as we pray that way, we begin to have God's priorities in our lives. We need to readjust our prayers to be in line with the point of this small but powerful parable of casting the mountain into the sea. So we have seen this barren fig tree, and we've seen a barren temple that has been cleansed. We've returned to the barren fig tree, and I want to give us two applications in conclusion. First, for the believer and for the church, because Christ cleansed the temple, and since now the fulfillment of the temple is the church and also our individual bodies, We are called to clear out of our lives all things of which he does not approve. We should strive to have one heart with the heart of Christ who cleansed the temple and to say to him, Lord, there's something developing in my heart and it's wanting to take control. Lord, do not let it. This obstacle to the gospel must go. And so as we face in our denominations or in our presbyteries various issues that, that might usurp the gospel, let us first examine our own hearts and then when the need arises, ask the Lord to use us as instruments to cleanse his temple. May the zeal of the house of the Lord consume us, especially in our prayers. May we really believe that his truth is more powerful than error. And then, in order to apply this a little more deeply to our Christian lives, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And this passage that we're going to read in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 14, is a passage in which you will not be able to miss, has a temple context for the holiness of the people of God. So that's the connection, the temple context. We begin at verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty, since we have these promises, beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see it, don't you? (laughs) It's clear, isn't it? What have we allowed into our lives? How has our worldview been influenced by the world system that is under the wrath of God? What have we allowed into our lives? What should go from my life and from the lives of the people of God because it simply doesn't please the Lord who bought us? And it compromises our clear witness to truth that is revealed in God's Word. And we simply cannot unite our lives with elements that are incongruous with Christ's call to holiness. Princeton theologian Charles Hodge said this, listen, it is taken for granted that faith changes the whole character, that it makes a man move in an entirely different sphere, having different feelings, objects, and principles from those of unbelievers, so that Intimate union, communion, or sympathy between believers and unbelievers is as impossible as fellowship between light and darkness, Christ and Belial. And it must be so. They may indeed have many things in common, the believer and the unbeliever. They may indeed have many things in common, a common country, common kindred, common worldly avocations, common natural affections, but the interior life is entirely different, not only incongruous, but essentially opposed to one another. And that means that there is appropriate self-examination ongoing in my life in which I simply say to Christ who cleared the temple, Lord, help me to cleanse this out of my life. It has no place in my life. And I'm asking that I, that you, that every believer in Christ think through this application this morning. That we individually, as we come together as the people of God, may seek and strive for holiness of life. But I have one other application. To you who may be here or listening, my lost friend, you don't know Christ, Do you also see how this passage addresses you? Jesus spoke of the temple, and Jehovah in the Old Testament spoke of the temple as the house of prayer for all nations. By cleansing the court of the Gentiles, Jesus is pointing to his cross. All nations may now come. The invitation is as wide as the world. His arms are wide open all the way to his beating heart. And so we call you to him and to a personal relationship with Christ. 
Hanging a picture of the sun in a cold room will never warm the room. You can look at that picture all day long and you still may freeze to death. It's having a living, vital relationship with the Savior of sinners that will bring life and strength and warmth. But you say, well, I'm barren. Well, the way to fruitfulness is to give up all of your attempts of righteousness of your own. By faith, depend upon Christ alone, and your life will begin to be fruitful eternally for Him. Where there is no fruit, there is no life. But Christ rejects no one on the basis of his former sins. He is a Savior that delights to show mercy. Amen and amen.